Welcome back to part two of our interview with Buell W. Frazier, the man who drove Lee Harvey Oswald to work the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, November 22nd, 1963. In part number one, Frazier described driving Oswald to work that morning, then later in the day, around 1230, attending the motorcade and hearing shots ring out. He said someone came up on the street, a woman, and said they've shot the president. We pick up from that point. So it was three shots. And um, so very shortly after the third shot, a lady come. Uh, running up the sidewalk. And by the way, the sidewalks along the buildings and everything was really packed. Uh, There's a lot of people. I can't begin to tell you how many people were there, but there was a tremendous amount of people there and all along the parade route, even on Main Street and everything. Um, so she came running up and she was crying and she uh, she said they shot the president. And so I turned to Sarah Stanton, the lady standing beside me, and I said, what did she say? She said, she said they shot the president. Well, when this, when when the third shot, it rang out and everything, I, it was so much uh, chaotic uh, going on down there. People were running, falling down, screaming and hollering. It was quite a, it was quite an ordeal. And, uh, so I realized that, hey, something's not right here. So I just stood still where I was on the steps. And I saw the uh, police officer, the motorcycle policeman, uh, and he came up the steps. He already had his pistol out. And and Mr. Truly, the warehouse uh, uh, manager, uh, they went on in the building. I just stayed outside. Oh, uh, and and the thing is, um, I didn't have any idea. This was all happening so fast, and it's something I had never experienced. So, how uh, back as a motorcycle policeman, I came up the steps and everything. Mister Shirley and Billy was also there, so they so they left to go down toward the triple underpass to see what what was going on. And so a few minutes later, I said, well, I think I'm going to go see what what Mr. Shirley and Billy's finding out. So I, I started down that way. But I realized with all everything going on, people running on, I never would find them. So I just turned around and went back uh, toward the front steps. Well, like I said, you know, the sounds that time of year in November with the wind swirling, and the uh, Dealey Plaza being closed on three sides and open on one, it kind of gives it can give a uh, effect of like a, like being in a canyon. Uh, so uh, I was as shocked as anyone. I, I didn't have any idea because that's the first presidential motorcade I'd ever been able to watch, and never have been able to watch one since. I really didn't know exactly what to do. I was kind of terrified uh, when the lady said that they had shot the president. Well, even back then, being a small, uh, uh, just being a young man, I knew that was a very terrible thing. 
and I truly believe what happened that day, Mr. Smith, this country has never, never recovered from that. And uh, this country has gone downhill. Um, America is still a fine country, but it's not what it once was. Many of the people who follow the JFK assassination, people who have written about it, even written books about it, say that Lee Harvey Oswald did it all by himself. And they say that he brought the Manlicker Carcano rifle to work that morning in a package in your car. However, you say that the package that Lee Oswald was carrying wasn't long enough to, we know now, wasn't even long enough to hold the broken down Carcano. Have you ever doubted your description of that package? Do you feel that uh, it was correct? I said in my description it was around two feet, give or take an inch or two. But here's what uh, I found out. No, I never have doubted that. Uh, Later on, I worked for a uh, company for a few years called History America Tours. And one of the people on a panel discussion was a person by the name of Josiah Thompson. Uh, he um, uh, he is the author of Six Seconds in Dallas. And he recently has written another book called Last Second. But the Six Seconds uh, in Dallas, uh, he was there to uh, discuss uh, his book and answer questions for people. Um, the thing is, Josiah Thompson has a Italian Concorda rifle, which is only a few serial numbers, I understand, from the actual one they found in the depository that day. Um, and he and I measured the uh, he measured the wood, the stock of the rifle, and the, uh, the the barrel of the rifle, and they would not fit in a package of that, uh, you know, around two feet. Give or take in two, they they were too long. So, uh, as I described, how Lee carried the package up to the uh, building that day where we worked. Uh, one end of the package was cupped on his hand, the other on his armpit, and being the uh, the heights of Lee, uh, that could not have happened. In other words, not what I'm saying happened, but uh, what I am trying to say is that the package that was on my seat fit fit under his armpit and his uh, right hand, cup right hand, and there was nothing sticking out. So he told me there was curtain rods in there, and some people have asked me, he says, are you sure there were curtain rods? I said, well, that's what he told me, and if you stop and think. If you're working with someone and and they've never lied to you about anything, why would you doubt them? You know, uh, people are, you know, uh, sometimes when things are happening in live uh, sequence, um, you don't have the benefit of hindsight to tell you the answer to their question. All you, all you know is what you actually seen. Now, I don't want you to get ahead of yourself, but uh, later in the day, you were questioned by the Dallas police. And uh, uh, according to you, you were questioned extremely 
vigorously. Uh, absolutely. Now, according to what you've said uh, that I've read, you were at one point during that questioning given a typed-up confession, and uh, you were told or you were asked to to sign it. Is that correct? Yes, that is that is true. Uh, the Dallas uh, Police Department picked me up early afternoon. Yeah, we left. Uh, we left uh, work there. They ceased work at the school book depository that day. Uh, we left there shortly after one because they had a roll call, and after that, they told people that there wouldn't be any more work that day, but we would come back on Monday and resume normal activities. And so everybody left to go there go home or wherever they were going after work. And so I left, and so I stopped by the hospital to see my stepfather, who had a heart attack, and I was at the hospital in Irving, Texas, and two detectives, um, I got a call. I was in there helping the nurse. She was changing uh, the uh, medication that they were giving him to his veins, and she wanted to know about how many drops, see if there was, and I was supposed to count them, and I got a phone call, and I told the person, I said, well, dispatch it to the room. I said, I'm busy helping the nurse, and she said, well, I don't know how to patch that through, so I said, well, I'll be out there in just a minute. Well, I opened the door to the room, and I was grabbed by two detectives, and they threw me up against the wall. Uh very quickly, and uh, I was so startled, I asked him, I said, what is this? Who are you? What are you doing? And, you know, I, I was terrified, and they said, well, we're arresting you. So we left the hospital there, and they went to my uh, my sister and brother's home, and they wanted to know if I had any, any uh, rifles or anything, and I said, yes, I have two. And I told them I had a double-barrel shotgun and a I uh, used for my uh, you know duck hunting, bird hunting, and then I had a British Enfield 303. So they took those. <clears throat> excuse me. They they confiscated those and uh, the ammunition and took those and I had them with them. And on the way to Dallas, we stopped by the Irving Police Department and they uh, kept the uh, sergeant on the desk there in, in the loop, telling them that they were arrested me and take me downtown Dallas. Well, uh, we got down downtown Dallas, 30 part of Friday afternoon, and I didn't leave there until Saturday morning. And during that time, I was questioned quite lengthy at a time by two detectives, and then they would take a break, and two more would come in, and it would resume. And this went on for many hours. And uh, the whole time I was there, I asked, "Could I have, could I have a glass of water?" Well, if you've ever been in an office where they have these styrofoam cups that you uh, get coffee out of, well, there's different sizes, or the smallest size styrofoam cup. I got a, I got a, about a half a cup of water, and that's all I got, and that's all I was given. And I'd been talking for hours; my mouth was so dry. And um, so uh, Captain Will Fritz, who was head of homicide, he comes in with a type confession and throws it in front of me with a pen that signs it. 
Well, I pick up the pen and I start to read what I was going to sign, and it indicated that I was an accessory and was, and knew about and was part of the assassination of General Kennedy. And I told him, I'm not going to sign that. I said, that's ridiculous. So he draws his hand back. He's standing to the left of me. He draws his hand back to hit me, and I throw my left arm up to block. And I look at him, and I tell him, I says, you know, this policeman outside that death, uh, that door over there. But I said, before they get in there, you and I are going to have a hell of a fight. And I said, I'm going to get some good licks in on you. Because then I had really become mad because they would accuse me of something I never would dream of doing. I suppose my question for you is, if they will take a 19-year-old, uh, more or less kid, wearing an, uh, an FFA jacket, uh, I think it was, that you were had on that day, yes, and put that sort of a confession in front of him, some people might say, if they were trying to railroad you, would they also have tried to railroad someone else, especially if that someone else had lived in Russia, was a admitted and avowed self-avowed Marxist, especially in the Cold War era of 1963, uh, that doesn't say some very good things about uh, the Dallas Police Department. Well, as I as I tell people, uh, Captain Fritz was the one that put the confession in front of me. I'm sure... I'm sure he did a lot of good things for the Dallas Police Department in his time. But as I try to explain to people what I have learned from reading and studying, sometimes uh, people like um, Captain Will Fritz, they become like the people they hunt. And they don't even realize it. They change. And I think, I think he had changed uh, into that type of a person, uh, which... You know, I never want to say anything derogatory about him because um, I know he has family, and and I understand that. But uh, if they could have seen the way he treated me and everything, I think it was totally uncalled for. Because here was a young kid from a small rural town in deep southeast Texas. I never had been in trouble with the law on anything. And he wouldn't believe all the things they they've gone back there and tried to find out about me. Um, I, I don't understand why they did that. Now I do understand that I know they were probably under a lot of pressure uh, because hopefully we'll never have that in this country again. But still, uh, just basically using good common sense, uh, you just don't do things the way they did that. It's just not right, but that's what they did. Now, Oswald, when he was questioning, questioned rather, and he underwent a, a many hours of questioning, when he was asked about the package that he put in your car, that you say he put in the car that morning, he said he didn't have any package that morning. And he also said that uh, he didn't even take a lunch, uh, did he? No, he did not. And that morning when we we hadn't gone very far from the house that Friday morning, I looked over and I said, where's your lunch? And he says, he says, oh, he says, I don't have my lunch. He said, I'm going to buy my lunch that day. Well, I didn't think anything about that because we had a couple of sandwich shops that were in walking distance 
from where we worked is that you could go and uh, get a sandwich, but we also had a catering truck that came there every morning break time, and some of the guys would get things at break time, but they'd also buy their lunch and take it in and put it in the refrigerator, and they'd have it for lunchtime. Well, I didn't think anything about that. And then uh, right there around 1 o'clock when we had the uh, roll call, and everybody answered, but he wasn't there. But I didn't think anything about it because I remember he told me he was going to buy his lunch. Uh, so I didn't. So, you know, some people were not aware of what he told me about he was going to buy his lunch. And myself, knowing about the two sandwich shops who were in walking distance, for a short distance from where we worked. I didn't think anything about it. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but many years later, you said, as I recall, you said that you saw Lee Harvey Oswald leave the building, the Texas School Book Depository, and uh, cross the street. Isn't that correct? Could you tell us about that? Now, when I tell you now, I tried to go down and find Mr. Shelley and Billy. Uh, I walked back to the corner there, and it was two... Uh, people standing there, and we started talking. Well, I looked to my left, and there, walking down beside the building that we worked in, there was Lee. He was walking, he's coming toward us there on the street corner of uh, Elm and Houston. Well, he didn't come right up to where we were standing. He he cut across Houston Street and, uh, and went over, and then when he got across the street, then he made a right and went across Elm Street. And I was watching him, and about halfway across the street, someone, one of the people standing there said something to me, and I turned to see who was talking to me, and I answered them, and then when I turned back, I had lost him in the crowd. And it was very, you know, there were so many people there uh, standing on the, you know, outside the buildings and everything. It was, you know, you could easily lose someone if he wasn't watching them continuously. You know, it seems as if uh, I recall seeing a video, I think it was made by the Sixth Floor Museum. I'm not totally sure of that. And a woman, I think from the audience, stood up and she mentioned uh, something about Lee Oswald having a gun. And you quickly responded, well, that's because, you said that's because there was no gun. Yes. Do you have not an opinion, a full opinion about maybe what happened, but do you have a gut feeling that Oswald is innocent or guilty, or have you ever resolved that at all in in your mind, or or can you? Well, here's the thing. The person I worked with uh, and the stories my little nieces told me about playing with him, how kind he was, and everything, um, I find it hard to believe that he could do something like that. He just wouldn't. He just didn't give me the impression that he could ever do anything like that. That concludes part two. We'll hear more from our presentation and our interview with Buell Wesley Frazier, the man who drove Lee Harvey Oswald to work on the morning of JFK's death. On this, our special podcast presentation on the 60th anniversary of the death of John F. Kennedy.